welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 89, recorded June 28th, 2012. Right, and so we'll be putting this out on July 20th, a mere two days before the Star Trek Next Generation 25th Anniversary Spectacular is at your local theater. Cool. So uh, I highly recommend everybody to uh, listen to our podcast first, and then go buy your tickets. Yeah, yeah. So I got that one. I'm looking forward to that one. And then also on July 20th, the day this gets released, Batman: Dark Knight Rises. Oh yeah, let's go. So it's going to be a good one. So uh, since we're talking about summer movies, that's what we're going for this theme. This is our third episode of our Star Trek summer movie special. Cool. So we're doing Nero 3 and 4, and we're doing the uh, short that was in the May 2009 issue of Wired. Exactly. It was titled When Worlds Collide. Yeah, and it was actually written by, uh, you know, the same guys, uh, Orky and well, uh, Kurtzman. And I got to just mention that it, it does say in, in, in the issue of Wired, it says by Paul Pope and K slash O. Kurtzman slash Orky. Ah, that's what the KO is. That makes sense. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So they're involved. Okay, so Paul Pope is definitely a comic artist. Yes. So so truly this... So he, Paul Pope did the artwork and KO <laughs> did the writing. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because that, that was not obvious to me. That's why I looked up Paul Pope. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, Paul Pope is... Uh, he, he's... He has a unique style that I'm sure we'll talk about, but uh, he's done lots of stuff. Uh, I have a couple of his graphic novels, some of his uh, Batman stuff. Oh, cool. But we'll talk about that later. Okay. All right, so I got the pleasures of doing the first issue, which is Nero number three. Uh, This came out October 2009. The story is by Roberto Orki and Alex Kurtzman. Writers is Mike Johnson and Tim Jones. Artist is David Messina. Colorist is Giovanna Nero. Letterer is Neil Yutaki. And editor is Scott Dunber. The uh, cover is the lower left of the Star Trek swoosh. Uh, It's tinted in blue, and it's just artist depiction of Nero. And then the uh, photo incentive cover is a headshot of Sulu, just a a random shot of uh, the new Sulu. So the story starts off with the Narada streaking through warp space, and the caption says that they're at the very edge of the Delta Quadrant. Nero's thoughts inform us that he can sense Spock's presence, but perhaps thinks that they are not heading towards Spock, as they had originally thought in last issue. He can sense something else, something much older and more powerful. Nero's second-in-command, Ayel informs his captain that sensors show that they are heading towards a large artificial nebula. 
He also states that the Narada's controls are still locked out and that the ship is answering the unknown object's transmissions. Nero's musings remind us that he has honed his telepathic abilities while on the Rurapenthe prison planet. He can hear what the Narada hears. He orders the viewscreen on to see the object. Once it snaps into focus, we are treated with the blue gaseous form of what we know here on Earth as V'ger. Through Nero's past mind meld with Spock, he knows that Spock had once melded with this object, yet it was in a different galaxy in a different timeline. Nero orders them to continue to head towards the object. He tells Aiel that the object is speaking to the Narada and to Nero himself. Nero opens the container of the drug he was using on the prison planet to enhance his telepathic powers and takes a swig. Just then, a huge energy spike lances through the ship. A column of light appears on the bridge and tries to merge with Clavel. Clavel withers and dies, managing to utter a single word, Creator. Nero then steps into the light and vanishes. Aiel assumes command with Nero being MIA. Nero and V'ger are merged, and V'ger is experiencing Nero's life. We are treated to shots of a newborn Nero being swaddled in his mother's arms. We see toddler Nero in a sandbox. We see a young Nero embracing his young wife. We see the Narada mining vessel, and then we also are treated to the supernova engulfing the planet Romulus. On the ship, Aiel receives a telepathic communication from Nero. Nero requests that they bring the Narada into the pulsing orifice of V'ger. While en route, Nero informs his second-in-command of the origin of V'ger, how it was created on Earth, then upgraded and became a sentient machine similar to the Borg and the Narada. Once the Narada arrives at the center of V'ger, Aiel is requested to come out and join him at the core. Aiel and another Romulan arrive and stand with Nero in front of the Voyager probe. Nero explains that V'ger sensed the Narada's arrival in this timeline and started heading towards the Alpha Quadrant, seeking a kindred spirit. When the Narada sensed its arrival, it too awoke and left the Klingon prison planet behind. V'ger attempts to assimilate Nero, similar to how it did with Ilea in Star Trek The Motion Picture. But Nero's hatred is too strong, and it does not allow it to take over his mind. Nero is able to use the power of V'ger, though, to correctly predict the arrival time and the place of Spock's return from the future. Nero breaks the connection with V'ger, and the three Romulans beam back to the Narada. Once they arrive, the Narada is already heading out. The crew assume that the Narada, again, is taking them blindly, but Aiel correctly assumes that Nero is the one who is in control. As they leave V'ger behind and warp back to the Federation space, Nero calmly states, There's no time to waste. Spock is coming. To be concluded. <laughs> I like that. To be concluded. Rather than continued. So what'd you think? I, this is the one I've been wanting to talk to you about since I first read it. <sighs> uh, the whole Voyager-V'ger crossover. I gotta tell you, I'm glad, on the one hand, I'm glad they did something special to figure out how possibly Nero could have known exactly the when and where that Spock would be spat out of that wormhole. 
uh, that singularity. But I gotta tell you, it's like I don't like it. I don't like it. Uh, I, I didn't like this. The whole V'ger thing I thought was lame in the original motion picture. Uh, I didn't like it. I thought it was boring as they were traveling through that entire big dust cloud thingy, whatever, to finally find, oh, it's Voyager. It's been upgraded. It's like, I always hated that. And now they're going back to the well with that same idea that I didn't like in, in Star Trek the motion picture. <laughs> and and now they're doing that tie-in between the Borg and the the race that upgraded V'ger. Uh, and, and, like, I've heard that rumor Lots of times. I mean, who knows? I think I think somebody said Roddenberry even alluded to it or something, but it's at one point or another. Right. But it's like well, I see, don't know. I, I I'm just not think, crazy about it. I didn't think they actually in this book. I don't think they actually said that Voyager or was upgraded by the Borg. Well, okay. it says that it un. It says that it was upgraded. A kindred, a kindred spirit. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that was my that was my problem. I liked that they didn't just flat out say the Borg did it. Yeah. Um, but I did not like how they said that it became a sentient machine like the Borg, like the Narada. The Borg aren't machines. They are cybernetic organisms. They're still organic with cybernetic enhancements. Yep. They're not robots. Yep. So uh, that that line kind of threw me. I know that they're trying to make the Narada seemed like she or he, I guess it would be a she, uh, <laughs> has some sort of sentience, but I don't know if I buy that. Well, well, they said it in the last issue. I know, but it's not like it's talking to them. Well, do you, you have to talk to somebody to be sentient? Yeah, of I don't course. think you necessarily need uh, communication skills. You need to be able to think. Right. And it is doing a lot of things by itself, unless it's doing things by direct command. A V'ger or whatever, um, but if that isn't the case, then the rod is doing what it wants to do. Anyways, my point is, Borg aren't sentient machines; they're cybernetic. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll buy that. And, and, I, and so now, by the end, Nero is using telepathic abilities to tell the now tamed, brought to heal Narada what to do. Because it's convenient to the plot, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It yeah. seemed a little inconsistent all the time because they made a big deal to say they never had control of the ship. Yet, when Nero goes into V'ger, he tells them, come on in. Okay, so now they have control of the ship? I didn't think they ever did. Well, I thought they had control of the ship at the very beginning. I mean, when they first got the upgraded... Uh, mining ship. Sure, sure. And, and, and it seemed like they had total control of it, right up to the point that they were capped. You know, that that they were uh, they had their damage, but at the hands right. of the Klingons, or not that Klingons, but uh, actually at the hands of uh, Kirk's George. father. Right. So I, I don't know. So so in its rebuilding over twenty five years of all that damage, it 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 then got sentience that it didn't have before. Right. Yeah, exactly. Does it make sense? Oh. I mean, Nero does say that he was in contact with the the Narada the whole time he was on the planet. So maybe uh, maybe it was always there and talking to him. 
biding its time to uh, do the big jailbreak. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I thought it was biding its time until the big jailbreak, too. But now this comic is saying, oh, no, um, it found Buddy a long ways away and that's heading towards it. So it went ahead and met, met it halfway. Yeah, that didn't make so, sense because that doesn't really tie into the last issue, which the Narada didn't start powering up until they were already on their way to it. Right? So Nero and them were already doing the big jailbreak when the Narada started powering up, right? Well, I think the timing was pretty weird. I mean, there was very handy timing in the previous, in the last <laughs> issue. Very handy timing. Because uh, those two Klingon engineers end up getting fried. Yeah, they did. Just before... Nero starts the jailbreak. Right. Okay, it was before. It was before. So So did the Narada know even, that he was about to do it, or did because the Narada did that he did the jailbreak? I I I, I don't see how the Narada could have known he was doing the jailbreak. Because they were in but who psychic knows? communication. Uh, but I but I thought even if that's the case I thought the Narada wanted to go off and and see its uh, buddy to sniff his butt. He's, he, he, you know, these are like two dogs trying to get together or something. You know, hey, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen another dog in a long time. It's like, ah. And so, why does that tie in with Nero? And and why were they in such a big big deal about waiting for those Romulan humanoids? You know, right? Why? I mean, if you were that in that big a de- deal to go and snuff sniff Viger's butt. Why do you even wait around for Nero and company? I don't know. Sniff Nero's butt. I like it. Or not, I mean, not Nero's. I, I, I said V'ger, didn't I? Oh, I don't know. But it's I should have said V'ger. Either way, it's it's comical. Oh. Yeah, no, I I, I liked the V'ger part. Yeah. I, I like that they're, you know, because they did this, nobody has to wonder, are they ever going to do a V'ger episode with Chris Pine? You know, because no. that's what I've always <laughs> been wondering. Oh, okay. Oh, I'd hope not. But well, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I always like it when they tie in stuff together. Um, but yeah, this one seems and they are little, doing it. But... This one seems a little forced. Yeah. Now I will say, like I said at the beginning of my comment, you know, it's great that they that they didn't just, you know, they didn't even bother trying to explain how they knew where Spock came out, you know, where and when. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm glad they actually tried to use something that was going to be super humanly, incredibly powerful as far as computational abilities and knowledge of the cosmos and whatever. Because, of course, uh, V'ger was gathering all that knowledge, right? Right. So, How would it gather the knowledge of future events? Or was it just able well, to somehow I don't, calculate I, I, it? I, I, I thought it was a, a question of taking all that information... That had happened already right. in the in the prime universe timeline, where they went into the singularity to calculate when he would come out again. But the thing that kind of annoys me is it's like Nero and company were gone before Spock went in, so they don't even know exactly when he went in. Or I mean, if they he could went. try to they could what? Or if he even went in? Well, come on. He, I, I, I think it was pretty the power. Of the singularity was so strong, I think you could probably make a safe bet that he went in. Right. He couldn't escape the gravitational pull. I mean, it, supposedly Clavel could tell you that much. Um, but, I mean, well, when exactly did he go in? So you calculated based on exactly where he, his proximity to the singularity, right. exactly when he went in? 
There's an awful lot of calculation yeah, going on and, here. And I don't see how V'ger would have known that because V'ger's been in the other quadrant for how long? Well, I, and I don't think way V'ger... Before, way before Nero ever showed up 25 yeah, years ago. And I don't think V'ger knows what happened. I think uh, just Nero is communicating boost. it to him. Gave Nero the mental boost just to do the calculation? No, I think it's Nero. I, didn't it say something about Nero in communication with V'ger used V'ger to right. to do the calculation? So he was giving V'ger the information, uh, okay, okay. and V'ger was doing the calculations. It's just that, I don't know. I think we're being a dead horse. Yeah, and, and if V'ger really wanted them, why would V'ger let, let him go if it really wanted to try to assimilate him? Uh, right. Or and, see, or have a little buddy. And they out. use the word assimilate, which implies Borg, but I never thought that's what they did to Ilea because she died, and they just replaced her, and, and Vija yeah. just replaced her with a robot. Right. I mean, that wasn't her anymore. Right. So, to me, that's not assimilate. That's replicate. Uh, destroy and recreate. Right. Uh. Which, which I thought the, the wording was odd there. Yeah. And the idea, and the idea that he couldn't have been uh, absorbed and destroyed and recreated, Nero. That is, right. it's like, pff, why not? It's like, come on. Oh, he has that much hatred in him. Uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, like you said, maybe we're beating a dead horse. We are. Now, and what? What is this uh, magical drink that he's taking, though? Um. Was time. that was that Triox compound? Because they did mention Triox compound uh, in the previous issue, right? It, it, right, the smugglers. Right. I'm just wondering what, what it's doing for him. Well, and, we know what they're well, saying. We know what it's saying. It's doing. It's boosting his latent telepathic abilities. Right. But how is it doing that? Interesting. Uh, the fact that they just drop the word, you know, the the, the label Triox compound, uh, which is a known. Is that the thing that McCoy was using when they were on uh, on Vulcan to give you know more more oxygen into? Uh, well, that's what it Kirk? sounds like. Okay, so so I don't know. So 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 they throw out a drug from the past, you know, from Star Trek lore, and they don't necessarily say that that's the thing that Nero is taking, but it is one of the things that they're smuggling into the prison, right? And let's say it was that. It's like, well, all that does is give you more oxygen in your brain, at least for humans. Makes it so, smarter. More oxygen. Well. Anyway, and, anyways. And, and a nitpick thing is that they keep talking about how because he has this drink, he has more um, psychic, telepathic powers similar to the, the Vulcans. Right. But the Vulcans aren't telepaths. They're, they're touch telepaths. So they have to touch you to can you know mind meld with you and things like that unless you're right. um <laughs> but yeah but the il and, and nero are talking over distance they're not touching right. each other and the as far as you know the klingon <clears throat> vulcanoid i mean not klingon the vulcanoid type person that that can do that kind of stuff are the remans so i kept wondering why you keep saying that you're trying to get mind control like vulcans when it's the Remans on the sister planet that have the telepathic powers where they can project, you know, themselves into people on other ships and things like that. Yeah. Like they did in, in Nemesis. It just seemed odd that they would keep trying to tie in Romulans and Vulcans when 
Vulcans don't even have that power. Right. Well, the bottom line is, it's a story. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're, they're picking and choosing what what bits of Star Trek history, lore, whatever, uh, helps them with their with their script. True. So, and at the, some, some point, you just got to say, just go with it. <laughs> All right. So, Clavel's dead. Yeah. I mean, Very he, he looked hurting. Uh, I didn't... Did somebody say he was dead? I mean, I buy that he's dead. Um, oh, you think he just aged really fast? <laughs> well, he looked pretty style? bad. He looked pretty bad on the, on the ground, but I didn't know that he was dead. I mean, yeah. he was still talking. Uh, and by the way, he, when he so he said creator, right? So the thing is, he being human is a creator of Voyager, mm-hmm. therefore V'ger. So he was saying creator as in he's the creator, as opposed to him calling somebody else the creator. Don't know. All I know is that's what he said. Yeah. No, it didn't make sense. It's almost like uh, Clavel was telepathically touched by V'ger, and V'ger called him the creator, and he said, Creator? But there's uh, no question mark. And then died. <laughs> I was like, well, what did he die for? So so he was assimilated? I don't know. But why wasn't he recreated? I don't get it. Exactly. When, when, when they first showed up and he said creator, I was like, oh, this is the whole reason why... They wanted to have a human. Why they made such a big deal last issue that right. Clavel was a human. Right. Because now it's going to pay off with V'ger recognizing Clavel as the creator. Right. Nope. Never well, comes back up. Well, kind of. I mean, but but in a in a weak in a kind of a weak way, Clavel dies and he says creator. Yeah. That's it. Right. That's it. That's it. Okay. Right. I was almost expecting them to do Clavel kind of doing what. You know, Decker did, and staying with Viger. Oh, but well, nope. maybe his soul did transfer. Maybe he was recreated, but recreated on Viger. Maybe. Who knows? Anyways, okay. So I think the Narada looks really cool in this comic. The Narada in front of Viger, I think, looks really cool. Yeah, I think. Oh, on page twenty-one. Let's see, page... In front of the diaphragm? Or the... Oh, whatever? I was talking about on page 7 when it's the, the cloud, the V'ger oh, cloud. Oh, yeah, yeah, that looks cool, too. It also looks really good on page 2 and 5. 2 and, 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 oh, and I yeah, think, oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it looks cooler than it did in the movie. Well, you get to see the whole thing. In the movie, yeah. all you saw was the front tentacly part. Yeah, and it tends to have a lot of close-ups. Right, no, I agree. It, it looks cool here. Yeah. And I think they make V'ger look pretty cool. I'm yeah. not a big fan yeah. of the diaphragm thing opening up the little orifice right. thing, but it's cool as is it's it's as cool as it's gonna ever look. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I also think the inside of Narada is drawn pretty cool too. Especially on page four when you see that little form of Nero, you know huge, huge exactly. Huge uh wide angle. And the little the little silhouette of Nero jumping Kind of like uh, Flash or something, you know, across the uh, the chasm made by these broken uh, gangways. Right, and then when he lands, that trench coat type thing billowing behind him looks like a cape. Exactly. It's a so pretty they cool call shot. they call those hero coats. 
Oh, is that what they're called? Yes. At least that's what they call them on... Um, John Barrowman referred to them as, as hero coats because he and David Tennant were dressed up in those long, long yeah, coats a lot. Right, right. And they were like, uh, you know, kind of sort of, you know, like a cape and like kind of kind of cool hero guy, you know. So, For those not in the know, John Barrowman was Captain Jack and David Tennant is the 10th Doctor. Exactly. But they know that. Not everybody's a Doctor Who fan, my friend. Well, Captain Jack fan then. I'm sure most people know Doctor Who more than they know Captain Jack. Well, probably. But if you know if you know any recent vin- vintage Who, you're going to know Captain Jack. Harkness. All right. So my last comment on this issue is, and this is this is kind of weird for me. So they try to establish in this comic that everyone that Spock has ever mind melded with has some sort of link. And so it makes me remember the old health classes when you're in school where the teachers are trying to teach you about <laughs> STDs and uh-huh. you're not just mind-melding with the one you're with, but you're also mind-melding with everybody that they've ever melded with in the past. You know, that kind of talk. Some, yes. <laughs> uh, replacing mind-melding with other things. Exactly. Other activities, recreational activities. So is, or procreative activities, however you want to word it. Mm-hmm. But anyways, that seems weird to me. Because Spock is mind-melded a bunch. Oh, yeah. And are you telling me that everybody he's mind-meld with is kind of linked in some way? It yeah, just... he's been he's been very promiscuous. <laughs> I didn't like that. I mean, it's just... Yeah, I, I didn't like it either. It just seems another like another one of those things they throw out there that just... And I don't really... You know, and, and do they really need that to... to... To explain something? Yeah, because I mean, basically you're implying that Nero knew that V'ger and Spock had mind-melded. Because this V'ger hasn't mel- mind-melded with Spock yet. So he somehow gleamed that from his short time mind-melding with Spock. It seemed odd. Yeah, and he gleaned that because it happened in a dimensional timeline or something that has been erased. Well, I'm just thinking that... I mean, to me, it sounds like they're implying that Nero somehow has a little touch of everybody that Spock had ever mind-melded with. And that's like, holy crap. Oh, right, you're right. Oh, I see your point. Because that's a lot of people. (sighs) I don't know. And rock monsters and... (laughs) Silicon-based life forms. Yeah, exactly. Don't call it a rock monster. It's got feelings. (laughs) He is a rock monster. Hortas are nice. Hortas. Can we get on the next one? I'm ready. Let's go. Because I want to see what happens. This is the, the thrill pack conclusion. The startling conclusion. Startling. Okay, so this is my turn. So Nero number four, November 2009, publish date. Mostly the same people. As a matter of fact, I, I think it is everybody's the same. So I'm not going to bother mentioning them again. The cover has a fiery yellow background that looks like a big explosion. Kind of like the opening of a cheesy TV spy show. Half of Nero is in the foreground, and as usual, his shadows partially obscure things, uh, or shadows partially obscure facial features like his eyes. So he is Mr. Frowny Face, like usual. And uh, it's an okay cover. Uh, And now this one, is this actually, this isn't part of a swoosh, is it? It, Yeah, actually, for whatever reason, this one is kind of, zoomed in more than the other ones, but this right. is supposed to be the bottom of the swoosh. 
Oh, oh, is it? Yeah, because yeah. you don't see much of the of the black background, but I see it in the upper right hand corner. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Right. The alternative or the alternate retailer incentive photo cover uh, features a headshot of Chekhov. So yeah, there you go. Chekhov has nothing to do with this issue, but let's put a photo of him in there. The story opens with the Narada engaging a tractor beam on the jellyfish. Spock is captured. Considering the Narada far outclasses his ship in a fight and the dangerous red matter aboard, Spock allows he and his ship to be taken aboard the Narada. Spock exits the ship to confront Nero. Nero tells him to kneel, which at first Spock does not do. After a violent crack to the head, Spock reconsiders his position and does kneel. Nero says the 25 years of pain he experienced in the darkest hole in the galaxy was worth it to see the mighty Spock on his knees. With that done, Nero gets down to business. Nero states that he has been in search of the red matter for the last 129 years that uh, Spock has had it. Big check mark on that to-do list. With the red matter, Nero states he will now destroy all the planets of the Federation. How interesting, Spock went to all the trouble to save Vulcan at the cost of Romulus, only to end up in the past where Romulus is alive again and Vulcan is about to die. Spock says angrily that he did everything he could to save Romulus. Nero disagrees and tells his men to put Spock in a cell where he can get some rest. Spock needs to be wide awake when they get to Vulcan. Nero and Ayel are in Spock's ship, working out how to extract the red matter and deploy it into a large hole in Vulcan. Ayel asks Nero what does he want done with Spock. Nero says he has thought a lot about that and orders Helm to set course for Delta Vega. Spock is looking out a floor-to-ceiling window in his cell that actually looks rather roomy. He is thinking that a younger version of himself is out there, just starting his career. My friends are still alive again. Jim is alive. Unfortunately, he thinks about he has put them all and the whole of the Federation in danger by letting Nero get his hands on the red matter. He acknowledges that any good that was in Nero is now gone. He is a twisted, angry man. Nero calls Spock to the bridge. He asks what Spock thinks of the Borg upgrades to his humble mining ship. He states it has enough firepower to take out anything this era's Federation can throw at it. Just then, multiple contacts are approaching the Narada. It turns out to be 47 Klingon ships, heavy cruisers no less. Nero orders the shield to be raised as he takes an incoming hail from the Klingons. It's Koth, the warden of Rorapenthe. He says he is not here to capture Nero this time. He is here to kill him. Nero says simply, Good. Then he proceeds to lay waste to the Klingon ships. Ayel reports they destroy 25 Klingon ships. Nero says to not stop until they are all wiped out. Nero does not do anything in a half-hearted way. He's all in. Finally, with only one ship left which turns out to be Koth's, he hails Nero and tells him to go ahead and destroy him, but other fleets will take their place. The Empire will never surrender to Nero. Nero says he is looking forward to it, and he blows Koth's ship to atoms. Nero asks for a damage report, and Ayel tells him there is none. 
Shields are at full strength. Nero asks how Spock likes that. 47 Klingon ships attack them, but they come out of it without a scratch. He asks how a Federation fleet would fare. Spock says the Federation will find a way to defeat Nero, somehow. Nero does not show much faith in Spock's beliefs. Nero gives Spock warm clothes and several days of supplies and prepares him to beam down to Delta Vega to watch the show. The unique elliptical orbit of Delta Vega will bring it very close to Vulcan when it is utterly destroyed. As Spock is beamed down to Delta Vega, Nero does not tell Spock to live long and prosper. Rather, he tells him to live long enough to see the destruction of Vulcan. The end. Or to be continued in the 2009 movie. Which we all know how that happens. But before the 2009 movie, we will have the short here in a minute that was inspired, which continues right after this. Yes, which quite frankly, even though it begins, well, you'll see. Spoilers. Okay. Anyways, I I liked this issue only in that... uh, I I like this issue probably better than any of the other ones just because this is what it should have been all along. They needed more of the Nero spot closure. Yeah, I agree. And there wasn't any wackiness in here, like the last issue. Hey, let's go ahead and throw V'ger in here. Yeah, no, then none the of that. probe shows up, and then, uh, you know, yeah, I agree. Yeah, so it, 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 it took care of business. It teed up this part of the movie, the next part of the movie, very nicely. You know, I, 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 it all made sense. It all fit well. And again, really good art. Love it. Yeah. Now that you mention it, that third issue does seem kind of... Uh, although it on. wasn't bad, it did seem like a filler issue. It, it was. I mean... Because the first the two whole... issues was really about how, how Nero spent those 25 years yep. preparing himself for this issue. Right. Where the third issue was just like, and then they had a side story. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I think the only purpose the third issue served was to say how they knew where, where Spock would come out. Which they could have probably just said Cavell did it or the Narada somehow did it. I don't think they needed the V'ger. The tie-in. Yeah. Yep. But I still liked it, so... Oh well. Continue. Mm, mm, I like this issue better. I do like this issue better. Yeah. Um, I thought page 14 had a very cool drawing of the 47 ships getting blown out of the sky. I, I mean, it, it's it's just so extreme. 47 Klingon ships, and they've still got full power to their shields. Well, not only that, but you kind of glossed over it. When when Nero says good, and the Klingons start attacking, yeah. he just sits there and takes it. I mean, you can see them firing point blank on the Narada. Shields are holding fine. And then, and then when Ayel says, shields holding, Captain, then he says... Return fire yeah. on all of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. he just lays waste to them all. Right. Yeah, it was fantastic. Just him just sitting there, letting them, like, you know. Take their shots. Throw stones at See him. See what you can do. Yeah, I loved it. Well, and it really was a great test of, uh, of the technology they had. Right. Because they didn't, I mean, they took, they took care of business pretty well previously. You know, just, just wait, just destroyed things 
But this one, they know what they know for sure what their defensive capabilities are, and they're pretty good. Right. So good point. Yes. So yeah. So you know, we 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 were teased a little bit with uh, in countdown. It was always after the fact. You know, Narada amongst a big rubble of Federation or Klingon ships, but we never actually saw it fighting. Right. Uh, and then in in the first issue of Nero, Narada gets its ass kicked. And then in this one, it kind of redeems it. It's just like, oh, yeah, this is a bad ship. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's bad. Yeah. So you got to get past its shields close enough to go to warp just before you impact. And even then, you can't kill it. Right. Just put it into uh, self-repair mode for 25 years. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Yeah. Uh, I love at the end of it. Uh, end of the end of the issue where they show a close Spock's face as he's watching the destru- destruction of Vulcan, uh, superimposed on the night's nighttime scenery of the icy Delta Vega Vega planetscape. So yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I like that. Really good painting. Yeah. But still, it doesn't make a lick of sense on how Delta Vega can see Vulcan. But oh well. Well, well, <laughs> they did try to explain it with the elliptical orbit thing. He doesn't actually say elliptical. He just says orbit. Well, it's elliptical. <laughs> well, all orbits are elliptical, but... Well, but how elliptical? <laughs> I'm not going to no. argue with you on it. I don't know. Actually, a lot of orbits are pretty... I mean, at least large body like the planets, at least the big planets, they're pretty circular. But then you get into something like um, uh, a comet. That's obviously a great example of an extremely elliptical orbit. Right, right. But, um, yeah, so apparently Delta Vega is a neighboring... Um, planet. Planet, moon, whatever it is. Uh, that that is. Well, I guess it isn't a moon. But a neighboring planet that happens to come close to Vulcan. But wow, and, does it come close to Vulcan. Because and, in the movie, we see it pretty good from Delta Vega. And Nero's sitting there in his cell, and he's like, you know what? I hope when I get out of here, it's that one time of the year or once <laughs> in every 17 years where Delta Vega and Vulcan are really close together. Yeah, that would be really cool. <laughs> yeah, I hope I get out then. Yeah. Yeah, no, it didn't make sense, and you just got to go with it. Well, just it didn't. Go with it, it. In the movie, it made no, no stinking sense at all. At least here, they try to say something about the orbit. You know. Yeah, still don't okay. buy it. Yeah, okay, buy it. fine. So uh, Spock didn't want to kneel at first until he gets a good rap in the face with the yeah. uh, the scepter. Yeah. Uh, did you notice the blood from yeah. Spock's lip is red? That's a very good point. And it shouldn't be. Yeah. Should it? should be green. It should be. Now... Uh, he is half human, but we know from years of sparring with McCoy, he's got green blood. Right, we've seen it. Yep, exactly. Uh, when he got whooped when he was a kid, or was involved in that little skirmish. Yeah, but it doesn't it show him bleed in, in other episodes. That's not the only time we've seen it, is it? Well, it's the only one that comes to mind mm. in the 2009 movie. Right, right. That comes to mind. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I just assume that it was a coloring error. Well, error, or they said, you know what? We tried this with the green blood. It just didn't have the same impact. Yeah, so as long as two nitpicky comic book fans don't 
you know, point it out. Do this on on a, on an episode of their show many years <laughs> down the road. Nobody will ever know. No, well, I'm sure that people notice this, but this is an excellent example of where showmanship trumps uh, what makes sense. Yes, it's another way to put it. Yeah. So Same, same thing with Delta Vega. It just looks cool, so we're just supposed to buy it. Exactly. Just sit back and enjoy the ride and don't think too much. Turn your brain off. Well, not completely, but yeah, to some degree. Ne- never let sense get in the way of a good story. Oh, that that sounds like that's uh should be on a fortune cookie. <laughs> yeah, it's probably on a plaque above J.J. Abrams' uh, <laughs> Mac. Right. But anyways, uh, the the Klingons wearing old school uniforms I thought was nice. Yeah. You know when they're sitting there on the bridge of their ship. Right. Getting their ass hand, uh, butt handed to them, right? But uh, I like that they are wearing basically the same thing you see Taz Klingons wearing, right? Yes. And that's my last comment. What else you got? Um, I, I don't have anything else on that one. Really, really I, I've already said my two little comments. See, that was a really good one, so we didn't really have a lot of stuff to t- no. say about it. No, it was good. We didn't have that much to criticize, just a little. Just a little. And we didn't go on any tangent, so. <laughs> no, we didn't. Okay. So, uh, all right, so if we're done with that, that finishes up Nero. And um, as we said earlier, when the Star Trek movie came out, uh, Wired, the magazine, came out with a little short that was in a magazine where they interviewed. Um, J.J. Abrams, right? And he was the guest editor. Oh, the he so edited. yeah, he was the guest editor. So he actually had penned and kind of had ideas for some articles and that kind of stuff. And I guess other people actually executed them. I don't know, but they oh. had a lot of things in here that were, uh, you know, that had J.J. Abrams uh, input on it more than just uh, an interview. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. And actually, they they they. It, J.J. Abrams cost, talks about the mystery box, which I've talked about before to you and actually I believe on, on previous uh, episodes of the of the review. Right. And right on the cover of the Wired issue is the mystery box. It's actually the mystery box. It's, a, it's just, just a cardboard box and it has a big old black question mark on it and it says the mystery issue with guest editor J.J. Abrams. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Hmm. So All if right. you ever... If you ever seen his TED Talk, you'll know exactly what that is. And you can watch TED Talk on on YouTube or actually TED. TED.com? So, uh, I, I I guess it's TED.com, but if you do if you just do a search on TED Talks, JJ Abrams, it should take you right to it. And it's not the movie with the talking bear. No. <laughs> no. No, it is not the movie with the talking bear. Oh, okay, no. just making sure. No. All right. So, uh the next issue we're going to do it's Entitled, When Worlds Collide, Spock Confronts the Ultimate Challenge. And the writer, as we mentioned before, is Roberto Orca and Alex Kurtzman. And it's just listed here as KO. The artist is Paul Pope, 
who, like I said earlier, uh, has done a lot of different comic books. N- nothing else Star Trek related, but he did do Batman Year 100, which was a Batman of the Future story, which was pretty good. He has a very unique style. We'll talk about it later. All right, so the story starts off with Spock being marooned on the ice planet of Delta Vega by Nero, as we just saw in last issue. He has made a small fire for himself in a, in a little cave, Yoda style. High in the sky, we can see the planet Vulcan, uh, which can be seen through some tall, icy-looking mountains. We are privy to Spock's thoughts. He is commenting on how stress normally elicits an emotional response in life forms, but he, being a Vulcan, has learned to control these emotions. He pulls out a colorful object out of his robes. It floats above his hand in a chaotic form of strange angles and shapes. He calls this puzzle Sarek's Dilemma, after his father who gave it to him. We then flash to Spock as a young child playing the Vulcan harp. Through the, through the narration, we learn that Sarek assigned the child a tutor, and he was able to master the instrument by realizing the logic and mathematics of music. In turn, this helped him master his half-human side. We flash a few years, and we see a scene where Spock is learning the Vulcan nerve pinch from what looks like a bunch of nin- Vulcan ninja masters. He is only able to master the move once he is in complete control of his emotions. We flash forward again. This time, a youthful Spock is out on his Tal'uf test, which is a trial that uh, young men have to go to out in the forge alone. He encounters a Sati Crew cat, which is depicted as a large, wild-looking mountain lion with some very long, wicked ears. As the cat pounces, Spock is able to sidestep the beast and land a nerve pinch that sedates the creature, thus becoming a mature Vulcan male. We flash forward uh, quite a bit now, and we're on board the original Enterprise. Spock is in the lounge playing his harp, and Uhura is dancing around him, and perhaps singing songs about Charlie X. Spock's thoughts are that music would trigger emotions in others, and it seemed to have a particular effect on Ahura, making her very affectionate. We flash forward again to Spock enjoying a chess match with the good Captain Kirk. Spock comments on how this is his favorite method of practicing calm logic. He comments that the practice of three-dimensional chess has had its practical purposes. We are now in the nebula that the Enterprise and Reliant are dogfighting in. On the bridge, Spock suggests that Khan is taking a two-dimensional approach to the battle. Kirk relays the order to drop 10,000 meters. Spock comments that this is how they defeated Khan. We flash back to the present to find the elder Spock once again on the ice world, staring at the colorful puzzle. He thinks that Kirk never believed in no-win scenarios, but he is now having his doubts. In orbit above Delta Vega, the Enterprise jettisons an escape pod with Kirk's unconscious body on board. Spock thinks to himself that the course of events that have led up to this are all his doing, and that he now has a choice that will affect the course of this galaxy. 
He concludes that this is the galaxy's only hope. He picks up a torch and starts out to follow the streak of the falling escape pod. To be continued in Star Trek, the motion picture, 2009. Yep. It was a short one, and it was just a flashback episode. In a lot of ways, to me, it seemed like a Spock origin story, more so than part of the 2009 movie. Yeah, aside from the book-ending parts, I agree. Exactly, right. Yeah, the begin- very beginning, the very end. Uh, were tied into the uh, movie, but that's about it. All right. Which is fine. I mean, I, I, I actually, I do kind of like where they've got uh, maybe some of the origins of O'Hara's and uh, Spock's relationship. Reminding everybody how flirtatious she was in the episode Charlie X. <laughs> Which I have to watch that again. I just do not remember it. Oh, man, she is all over Spock. <laughs> and she's singing that song, and like I think she even like rubs her hand on his face, and it's. I watched that shortly after I watched the 2009 movie, and I was like, right. "Oh, this is where they're getting it from." Yeah. And then I read this story way later, and I'm like, "Oh, they beat me to it." Oh, there you go. But I gotta say, did 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 she actually have her fingers up in her <laughs> up in the air next to her face, kind of like? Bunny ears, bunny ears. It's like, that um, looks dumb. Maybe not. I don't remember that. Why did they do that? Anyway. Yeah, she she has a different, uh, she has a very unique, oh, uh, maybe she's supposed to be Vulcan ears? I don't know what that that's supposed to be. Oh, is that what that's supposed to be? I don't know. Oh. I didn't, mm-hmm. I never even saw the ear reference until you just mentioned it. Oh, you didn't notice that as you were, re- as you were reading I it? noticed she had her fingers up in the air, but I was like, is it some sort of disco move? You know, do, 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 do. <laughs> and, and, and interesting how that makes it look like um, like the beginnings of a relationship, but this was in the timeline where there was no relationship exactly. that we know about. Exactly. So, hmm. fascinating. Yeah, and she doesn't. None of the characters look like the actors that portrayed them in either either version of the movie, the movie or well, the TV show. Yeah, but I I I think she looks a lot more like the actress that played O'Hara in the movie than she looks like Nichelle Nichols. Uh, Zoe Saldana? There you go. Her. Her. I don't think it looks like either one of them. Mm, I think the hair is a lot more like Zoe. Mm, maybe. I maybe think the, the hair. Whole, I, I, think, I think the hair is dead on Zoe. And I think she is taller and thinner, which is definitely Zoe. Um mm. I think I think Nichelle is a lovely lady, but she always was more of a full-figured gal. Um, but that's an interesting point because, of course, again, this is depicting, you know, the the original timeline, not the not the prime, right? At least the think you know the thinking back in time, right? But look at Kirk. Yeah, I mean, dude, I, he, I, he looks know? like a demon. He 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 looks like a reject from a. Beavis and Butthead movie or something. <laughs> he just cartoon. looks. He looks flat out evil. Yeah, and it, okay, so I guess they're trying to say, okay, in for the kill or something, and then Spock ends up checkmating him. But I mean, his his lips and stuff. It's okay. So, so we, can we start talking about the uh, Mr. Pope's style? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. It's a unique style. I'll give him points on uniqueness. I just don't like it. In most cases, right. It seemed like the young Spock and the time on Vulcan, it wasn't quite as bad. But once yeah. they got on the Enterprise, everybody looked not like themselves. Yeah. And they had 
very unique facial features. Yeah. I mean... Uh, I don't know how it, to describe it. On, uh, on MTV, there was a, uh, like, like, like a little cartoon series where there was a female spy. Eon Flux. That's it. Right. Eon Flux. That's it. And she always had like almost nothing on. And she was always in these ridiculous uh, Bondian situations. But instead of getting out of them, she usually died at the end, which I always thought was kind of funny. Uh, I, I kind of like that. Uh, so I kind of like like it. But kind of, I, I see some similarities between that artistic style and this one. Yeah, I can see that. Although I did read, uh, I tried to look up Pope's um, bibliography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't see anything having to do with, uh, with Eon Flux in here. No, no, he had nothing to do with that. Yeah. No, and it doesn't it doesn't quite look like Ian Flux. Ian Flux no. was done by the same guy who did um Rugrats. Oh, uh, really? What was his name? Hmm. Chuck something. I forgot his name. Interesting. But no, he uh yeah, no, he they're totally different people. Yeah, yeah. And and this style here, especially, you know, the the older Kirk and the older Spock um is very reminiscent to his Batman Year 100. Because oh. in that book, it wasn't Commissioner Gordon or Bruce Wayne. They were long dead. It was a new guy who suddenly decided that, you know, Batman needed to come back. And and he kind of looked, you know, kind of like the way Kirk looks like there on when they're playing chess. Oh, yeah. You know, kind of evil looking. I don't know. <laughs> but something, you know, it's just, it's a different art style. Yeah. Right, I, I'm and, not overly blown away with it, but uh, no, but I, you know, I, I, I give it points. Yeah, for uniqueness, it doesn't detract me from the story. Yeah. I, I kind of like uh, the take on the new Enterprise. I thought the, the two shots of the Enterprise were actually pretty good. The yeah. uh, the Star Trek Two era and the 2009 movie era. Right, because they're a little tweaked. They're they're not they're not they're stylized. Mm-hmm. And you can see that they've got the essence of the ships. And in some cases, they're really close. But you can see he's taken some artistic license with them. Right. And yeah. certain characteristics of them. Right. No, I liked it. It was good. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Anyway. Uh, let me see. Uh, so, yeah. one of my comments was, how does Spock know that that shooting star is Kirk in the escape pod? That that yeah. seemed a little like, uh, how do you know what's in that escape pod? Or that it's even an escape pod. Exactly. How do you, it, it could just be a uh, an asteroid. You know, right. Well, down. I mean, Vulcan did just blow up not too, 200 feet from you. Maybe right. it's just some debris that came down. I mean, That's true. <laughs> yeah. Also, doesn't it kind of make it look like he's going to go out and try to find yeah. the, uh, you know, the, the, the pod or whatever he's right. seeing? And he doesn't do that in the movie. Well, he does save him from the monster, so he might have yeah, but, been on his way. Well, but okay, but where was Spock when he saved him from the monster? In the cave. Inside the cave, and it looked like it was the cave that Spock was hanging uh, yeah, out in. Good point. Yeah, good point. So, and the it, cave in this comic is tiny, which is not the cave that that he was in in the movie. Right. It was pretty good size, but not quite good enough to give that last evil critter 
full ability to get inside. Yeah, you know what? I hate to say it, but those are my least favorite parts of the movie. Being chased by the monster. Well, um, yeah, I, I, I think it was unnecessary um, juicing up of, of the movie. It's kind of like, like, like those screen flashes. Did you really <laughs> have to have those screen flashes when you were on the, on the bridge? No. You did not need to juice it up that way. Um, <laughs> did you have to bring up all these Star Wars or other kinds of uh, you know critters to threaten the lead Kirk? No. But right. whatever. Agreed. Yeah. It keeps things moving along. We have a very short attention span these days. True. I guess we need things like screen flashes to keep us engaged. All right. Otherwise, we'll we'll be complaining that it's boring, like Star Trek: The Motion Picture. No. <laughs> well, that was egregious. I mean, they really. I don't know. I mean, did they really expect us to just take in that, or what was then eye candy, which is now kind of meh, meh as far as uh, visual effects, and just sit there the whole time? I don't know. It's like. Yes, you didn't have anything to do those two and a half hours. Well, well, okay, two and a half hours. No, I mean, I'm talking specifically at the end when they're making their way into uh, Viger. Oh, right, right. That took forever. Well, it took them a long time to get out of space dock, too. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, the, right. the, the, the thing that uh, Abrams understands and uh, mostly uh, Steven Spielberg understands... Uh, and uh, you know, you know the, the the really good action movie guys is people do have an attention span problem, so you got to keep things moving along. And if right. you don't, you're going to lose your audience. So agreed. Um, so should we keep things moving along? Otherwise yeah, like we like like, like, like for example, this uh, <laughs> this this episode. Um, last thing I just want to say about this is. Um, I kind of like how how nasty Delta Vega is in the opening panel. With those spiky... Yeah, it, it basically looks like... Like spikes of ice coming off of the landscape. Um, and it was almost like it was melted. Wind came and blew the liquid water up in the air, and it was cold enough that it froze. I mean, that's what it kind of looks like. Yep. Um... And that looks very forbidding. It looks a lot more forbidding and alien than what we saw in the movie. Agreed. It also looks kind of impractical, but it looks cool. Right, right. yep. Yeah, because in the movie it was very flat, right? Yeah, it looked like a normal, it looked like Hoth. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know. Right. My last comment is about the cat thing that Spock fights the Sati crew. Right. At first, I thought it was supposed to be a shellet that they mentioned in the, or that they actually show in the animated series and Enterprise. Uh huh. But those look like saber-toothed tigers, where this thing isn't that. This thing looks more like a jackal or some sort of. It, I don't it, know it, what it looks like. Its face looks a little bit more mangy and stuff, but it's still a forbidding. I mean, a formidable creature. Oh yeah, it looks pretty cool, uh, and I really like the long ears. It really gives it a, a wicked look. Right. But it does look a little bit kind of, I don't know, kind of chewed on a little bit. <laughs> exactly. Maybe his face and stuff. His, his ears and face. <laughs> exactly. I like, like it. Yeah, I, I do too. And uh, and when Spock is doing the, Mul- the Vulcan neck pinch, which, by the way, is ridiculous. 
But, uh, I mean, this is a pretty big beast that he's bringing down. And he looks I mean, like it, Bruce it, Lee or something. <laughs> he, he does. I mean, this thing looks like it's almost like horse-sized. It is big. It's big. Yeah. No, I liked it. I thought that I, I liked that scene. I thought that that artwork, like I said, that that kind of action sequence. I thought the right. artwork uh, really worked. Agree. And that's my last comment, sir. Cool. I've got none others. All right, and we won't do any expanded universe because we covered these same months back in episode nine when we did Spock Reflections. Cool. So if you want to know what was going on pull back the old movie or the old episode and so i guess we just need to tell everybody that uh next week we're going to do star trek ongoing issues seven eight and nine cool which kind of ties into this and that it will uh has something to do with the vulcans wanting some vengeance towards romulus a little a little payback after nero's uh treatment of them Exactly. Although it should be interesting to see exactly who they have payback on, since there shouldn't be that many Romulans left. But Well, there's a whole planet of Romulans. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, you mean Nero's Romulans. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. So they're just going to be going after random Romulans? Uh, maybe. Hmm. I don't want to... Uh, you'll have to watch. Or read. Or read. Or just come back next week and listen to us. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. So until then, take care, everybody, and see you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at starT comicbookreview at gmail.com Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name book review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review